0: Hey, welcome to Common Ground Church, Bloberg. We are so delighted that you've joined us. We're a church committed to filling our hearts and our world with the life of Jesus. We do this by pursuing His presence, by being formed into His image, and then by loving the world on the mission He's called us to. Hey, if you've got any further questions about who we are or what we're up to, why don't you check out our website at cgbloberg.co.za. Enjoy the message. We trust it will serve you in your journey of finding and following Jesus. Our reading
1: this morning is taken from Second John chapter 1, and it reads, I'm reading from the NIV. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of the children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. This is God's word.
0: Good morning. We're going to try to get the slides up. I trust they're there. We're in 2 John and um If you've got your Bibles, open up to 2 John, verse uh, 1 through 6. It's probably helpful to have it in front of you. We're looking at a very interesting and and fascinating passage of Scripture because he opens this letter by saying, The elder, that's himself, John. This is John, one of the uh, early followers and apostles of Jesus. And he writes this first line where he says, To the lady chosen by God. You don't read many letters in the New Testament that start like that. To the lady chosen by God. Who could this lady be? Who is he writing to? I've never, uh, in any of the other letters, read an introduction that says, to the lady chosen by God. I want you to think about it for a moment. We're going to think deeply into this and try to extrapolate what could the answer be. But I want to ask you a different question for a moment, and this is the question I want you to think about. I want you to give some careful thought and some deep reflection to yourself. Think about the church. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the the people, the church. If everyone in the church, talking about maybe let's think about this local congregation. If everyone in the church engaged with the church, the way that you do, what kind of church would we have? If everyone related to, engaged with, connected with, committed to, involved in the church the way that you do, what kind of church would we have? To be honest, I'm not trying to make you feel terrible. If I look around and I look at all these amazing people, I look at Mark and Shereen, I go, wow, wow. If everyone engaged in the church the way they did, there would be a well-served church. There would be a beautifully cared for church. It would be filled with love and authenticity. If I look at Christine, I would, I'd see a, a, a church filled with amazing generosity of time, with amazing wisdom and grace that would fill the church. If I look at so many people across here, I look at Drian, I look at a person who, who brings his gifts and his talents. The church would be a place where the talents of different people are brought together and amazingly celebrated in different ways and shapes. If I look at Mark Button, I imagine a community where everyone gets stuck in joyfully, does what they're called to do, plays their part faithfully, and is happy to get their hands dirty. Each person does something. I'm not asking that question to make you feel bad, but for some, maybe it would be. But if everyone engaged with the church the way you do, what kind of church would we have? What kind of church would we have? Now, I don't know if you think about the church much, but if you're ever going to go study theology, which maybe many of you won't, and that's okay, you don't need to, You will get told really early on if they teach you something called systematic theology that you need to develop a doctrine for the church, a doctrine for the church, which means you need to have a teaching and understanding what is the church, what do you believe about the church, who is the church, what what scriptures teach about the church, and uh, you would be told to write some sort of paper that describes who is the church, what should the church do, what makes a person a member of the church, and you would eventually develop a biblical doctrine for the church. Hey, I would suggest that even if you don't study theology and go to university, that you should have a growing doctrine of the church, a growing understanding of what it means to be part of a church. What is the church and how should I engage with the church? So who is this chosen lady? I think I've probably given myself away in in asking that question. But here we've got uh, John, and he's writing, and he says, to this elect lady, and I am not going to do what a friend of mine, Andrew Thompson, did about 15 years ago. He spent a whole 35-minute sermon answering this question, who is the chosen lady? Who is this elect lady? And thanks to him, I know the answer, and I can tell you the answer. So Thank you, Andrew, if you ever listen to this talk. The chosen lady, the select lady, is by all accounts a local church congregation. John writes in a kind of playful way, and he writes to this church, and he says to you, this chosen lady, to this group of people who gather in the name of God. Now, maybe you're going, I'd actually love a little more detail. What do you mean uh, that this church is a chosen lady? Why isn't she a lady that he's writing to? Well, uh, First piece of evidence is that often in the, in the New Testament, the Bible is described as a bride, as a body. And uh, Michael Eaton says it a little bit like this when he says, um, he says, the elect lady is John's playful and friendly way of referring to a church. He lo- uses a plural form of you in verses 6, 8, 10, and 12. And only when he's speaking of the church as a lady does he use the singular form of you. The lady is a plurality, a congregation. I love studying little bits of Scripture and and getting into the nuance because if he sees it as a chosen elect lady, one of the other pieces of evidence is that whenever the Bible talks about elect, it often talks about a people. 1 and 2 Peter, he writes to the church and he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. He, He talks about this word elect and he talks about a group of people. That word chosen, elect. It's also strange that a guy who is an elder would write as an elder to one woman. It's a a strange thing unless he is using it as a metaphor for the local church. It's also strange that he would write to a group of people and he would send, he says another church, another chosen lady also sends their greetings, in plural. You see, this picture that he's writing is he's writing to a local church. Imagine you have a church, maybe you left uh, KZN and you've got friends in a church and you write to them. You write a letter to check in how they're doing. You care about them. You write this letter. And John is kind of going, hey, to the, to the chosen lady, my, my precious bride, as Revelation 19 talks about, this amazing group of people that I care so deeply for that I call her a chosen lady. I've got one chosen lady in my life. And uh, thanks to her, I got given three more chosen ladies, But it's an amazing thing as a husband to to read that and to go, a chosen lady. I go back to the the moment where Nick's walked down the aisle in Mpangeni on a beautiful uh, summer afternoon, 24 degrees. That was gorgeous. The the, uh, sun was out. We were in the cane fields of, of Mpengeni, and my chosen lady walks down the aisle to me. There's a sense of pride. There's a sense of, of something that you can't explain until you have your own chosen lady. Uh, John writes here to this local church with such a deep affection, such a love for the local church that he calls her a chosen lady. I suppose today what I want to do as we talk about contending is I want to talk to you today about your relationship with the church and with Your church. You see, we're called, according to John, to contend for the church, to contend for our understanding of this thing he calls the chosen lady, this beautiful bride, this amazing body of Christ, this gathered group of people. And that's an important place to start, by the way. The church is not a building. So quickly, people say, Draw yourself a picture of the church, and the first thing will be a steeple or a cross. Hey, if you're going to draw a picture of the church from here on out, draw gathered groups of people. Even if they stick people, that's the drawing. It's people. The, the technical term for the church is the ecclesia, which is the gathering of the called out ones. It's the gathering of the people whom God has brought to himself. That's the church. That's what John writes to as his chosen lady, this gathered group of people that he loves so dearly. Another descriptor for the church is a family, a group of people who, who live together, who do life together, who, who despite the fact that they didn't choose each other, they just got born into the same home, they need to get on and they need to learn to love each other based on a common DNA. Hey, that's why we call children of God, because we have a common DNA, and you don't get to choose your family, but you do get to learn to love them. So I want to kind of dig into this concept of church. I want you to think about your relationship to the church. When John writes, he talks about this message to the church, and he has these three priorities. He wants them to hold on to the truth. You'll see that in verse 4. He wants them to maintain love. You'll see that in verse six. He wants them to have a confidence as they walk with God. You see that in verses one, four and six, as he talks about walking in the truth. He wants a, a people who are part of this local congregation to have a real love for truth, a deep love for one another and a confidence in their followership of Jesus. How is your understanding, your love for the church going? I have a growing understanding of my wife. I have a long way to go till I understand mix, but there is a growing instinct for my understanding of how she feels. I can see her body language, and immediately I know something's happened that's great, or immediately I know something's happened that has challenged her, that she's had a tough day or a good day. I can see it almost in an instant the moment I walk into the door because I've spent time with her, and I've being commissioned by God to study her and to understand her. There's no human being in the world that I need to better understand than my chosen lady. Hey, in some ways, as John writes, he wants you to begin to understand your chosen lady, the church. If you're part of the local church, you're called to have a love and an understanding of what you ought to do and how you ought to uh, react and how you ought to engage in this wonderful thing called His church. It's an amazing thing. I think of the way we relate to family. Uh, There's there's things that everyone's good at in a a household. Let's call it a household. Maybe you're in a digs. Maybe you're living with a few people. Maybe you're living alone. But imagine the the general household with a handful of people living in it, and there are things that some people are especially good at, but there are things that everybody is responsible for. Does that make sense? So there's some things. Maybe it's cooking. I am an absolutely awful cook. I don't cook well, I don't enjoy cooking, but I have people in my family who are both excellent and enjoy it, thank God for that. But that doesn't mean that I don't need to pitch up on time for meals. That doesn't mean that I don't need to say thank you for the meals that Nick's or others provide. That does not mean that I don't need to help stack the dishwasher, you've got this on record, Nikki. I have a part to play in meals That is really crucial, even though I'm not the primary gifting that brings the meals together. That's just the way it is. Hey, not everyone uh, necessarily is a gifted leader, but every parent needs to parent. Not uh, everyone is amazing at hygiene and neatness, but everybody needs to shower and everybody needs to brush their teeth, right? Some are better than others, but we all have a baseline responsibility. Not everyone is an extrovert, but everyone is expected to love and get along with each other in a family, right? To learn to deal with their differences. Not everyone is an expert communicator who can articulate things so well. A lot of people need time to think about it. But every person in a family needs to learn to deal through their conflicts and their differences. Here's what's kind of sad, and we're allowed to have a few low points in every sermon, is that the bar seems to be dropped both in the family and in the church for what's expected of each other. We seem to have lowered the bar in our society for what's expected in a family. It seems like it's okay increasingly to sit in front of the TV and not say thanks and to maybe leave your plates on the table so that someone else will pick it up. It seems okay that when it comes to conflict, we can just sulk, go away, and not actually talk through our differences as a family so that we can mature into people of love who know how to deal with our differences in a loving way that actually faces our stuff and helps other people grow. It's like the bar has been lowered, and consequently, we're getting less levels of maturity coming out of children. We're letting children dictate to parents how they should live and what they should do. That's a generalization, of course, and it doesn't happen in our church, thankfully. We're all doing it perfectly, right? But I think the same is true in the life of the local church. The expectations are huge on some few leaders, and then in general and often, the expectations are really low on the rest. A consumer society says, you're getting paid to do that, so do an amazing job at making sure my church experience is fantastic, but I'll give where I can and if I can. And that's just not the family. Not if it's a chosen lady. Not if she is adorned with beauty and needs to be cared for and loved and treasured. Then, like John, we ought to look at this beautiful local congregation and something of our affection should be brought towards this and said, wow, how can I love her? How can I care for her? How can I make sure she is the best church ever? And I want to suggest two things. When you put your faith in Jesus, uh, this has helped you and develop a doctrine for the church. You become part of the universal church. You are part of Jesus' body. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you could, like me, be in the southern tip of Africa in a little uh, campsite called Hunklip, and you put your faith in Jesus, and He warmly embraces you, and you're part of the universal church. That is glorious. You're in. You're part of the, the, the called-out people of God. It's amazing. I trust even today. Some people say, yes, I'm in. I choose Jesus. I receive his grace. But the Bible doesn't end the journey there. Once you're part of the universal church, every believer across all time and across all nations, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Because then what you do is you connect yourself to a local community where there is an actual living expression of what it means to be part of God's people where you actually live out this thing called family, where there really are some leaders who help to define the doctrine and the direction of this community and to help to, to set a clear way of, of what it means to be the body of Jesus and how to live and to, how to love one another. That's what it means to be part of this amazing thing, to learn what are the base level expectations for any person to be part of the family and to learn to follow Jesus as best we can. If you look at our kind of descriptor of who we are as a church, we're a a church that kind of says we want to fill our city and our world with the life of Jesus, and we really just do that in three simple ways, and it's because we just see it all over the Bible, and we see it in the scriptures that we're going to read now that we have read, is that we do it through presence, being with Jesus, formation, becoming like Jesus, and then a, a mission, loving the world the way Jesus loves the world, and we do that through building relationships. And you'll see that in in John's passage right now. I mean, think of presence. Think of that that first one. Presence is really about being a community who first and foremost understand that we're called to be with God. There's nothing more defining about our DNA than that we are a people who are meant to live with God. That's what we contend for as a church. We are not the kind of people who go, shame, I'm so sorry, work's not going well for you. I'm thinking about you. The first thing we do is we go, let's pray because we believe that we live with a God who is with us, who actually hears our prayers, who walks with us, who cares about us, who is engaged in the challenges and the realities of your life. If things aren't going well, we engage in the presence of God. Together, we gather every week at 10 to 9, and we pray together because more than anything, we're not trying to fill seats on a Sunday. We are trying to be a people who know what it's like to be with God, to grow in relationship with Him. Presence has a dual meaning, by the way. First and foremost, presence with God. We're learning to remember that we're always present to God, but also actually presence with each other. Presence together actually is a kind of expression of our experience of the presence of God. That's why Jesus said, when two or three gathered, I will always be there with you. It wasn't like some creepy formula like, okay, now we're together. He's watching. Like, you know, better keep an eye out now that you're here. It, it, it was Jesus' way of saying, when my people are together, I'm especially present. I want to show myself because it's by your love that the world will know that you're my disciples. And And, and it's quite interesting how attendance is often seen as a kind of optional extra. And I'm not uh, at all frustrated. I, this, is, this is really what I want for us as a, as a community and as a society. Um, I really don't want to come across like, hey, get to church more. The pastor is angry. I, I, I'm not. I'm actually really happy and I'm delighted with everyone's attendance. But what I am suggesting here is that I think sometimes, and I'm going to read what I wrote here. Low attendance to church uh, sometimes it shows me something far more concerning, and I'm talking about an individual. Who maybe doesn't pitch up, goes, "Hey, I'll go once a month." F- shows me something far more concerning than that. Church isn't exciting enough to wake up, uh, wake you up, and, and change your weekend plans. It's this: it's that one might have such a low view of their contribution, and the body's need for them. That's what kind of makes me worried. If you go, you know what, I'm a one in four kind of person. That's how often I pitch up at church, and I get to life group if the, you know, if the stars align perfectly, and nobody has a snotty nose, then I'll get there. Here's the thing. It's, it's, it's not that just you're missing out, which is true, because consistency for, of, of pitching up is so healthy, Uh, the the, the monastic vow was a vow of of permanence. They would say, I'm not moving. I'm gonna stick with these same people who saw me when I was young and immature and made all these mistakes. I'm sticking with them because they know me warts and all, and they're the ones are gonna help me grow. And your consistent pitching up. It's not just good for your personality and your character to actually be a person of discipline, but it's actually important for you to understand that you understand that your contribution is needed. And if you continuously think that I'm actually just able to come and go as I please, you make your own contribution seem a little tardy, seem a little less valuable. Like my contribution is only, you know, it's one, it's a quarter valuable. Your contribution is 100% valuable. Your presence is an encouragement. We say that in our worship times. The fact that you are sitting here, the fact that you are singing praises to God is not just good for your soul, it's good for all of us. We need your singing. We need your presence on a Wednesday evening when we're sitting sipping coffee and wondering if it would be easier to be flipping through Netflix right now. We need you because in being there, in your saying, I choose to be with you, you're saying, actually, I choose the other way. I choose a countercultural opportunity. I choose the way of Jesus and I do it with my fellow brothers and sisters and I'm saying yes to it. Uh, We had a moment at the end of 2022, so now we're going back about 16 months. Nix and I had been leading our life group for a while, and we love our life group dearly with all our hearts, and, um, and yet we had had a tough time. And you know, sometimes in life groups, you just all have a tough time all at the same time. So everyone in our life group who's listening, we love you. But we had a moment where we realized this wasn't actually fun for us anymore. We're leading this life group, but we were actually dreading Tuesday evenings because, well the thought of nobody pitching up was fairly discouraging, especially if we thought everyone was coming at, at 4 o'clock and then nobody came at 6 o'clock. That was even more discouraging. And if you do that week in and week out, you start going, this is no fun, right? Anybody like a late, you know, 11th hour rejection? No. The right answer is no, you don't. And we, uh, we had two options in that moment. Get bitter and frustrated with a bunch of people that we love. Or, get honest. And so we chose the first one. We just got bitter and frustrated and we closed it. No, we, we, we called a little emergency meeting. And we said to a bunch of, everyone who could pitch up, we said, hey guys, in this present form of life group, we can't do it anymore. We feel like we're doing everything and we're not getting much back. And it actually wasn't anyone's fault. It really wasn't. It was probably the, the biggest fault was our lack of leadership. But we said, hey, we, we're gonna, if we don't change something, we're going to have to just find a new thing. Maybe we can all go start a new group somewhere else, but this one isn't working. And it was an amazing, life-giving conversation that was so humbling. And I hope as life group leaders and members, you're all listening. Because what happened in that conversation was that basically everyone went, we get it. We understand. And one of the things we said was like, we, we just can't do the thing of at 4.30, we can't make it. On the big group, everyone going, we can't make it. And we're going, why can't you make it? I thought in Romans 12, we said, outdo one another in showing honor. But, we, but that's not honoring communication. We can't be there. Honoring communication in Romans 12 would at least be, hey, guys, got a really sick uh, child, and uh, so-and-so has crashed his car, and bloody bloody blah blah and we're not going to be able to make it. So sorry. Please keep us in your thoughts and prayers. And we've realized that in, in, in kind of the lowering of the bar of family contribution, we just let people go, not going to be there, or just not reply at all. And so we've catered, and we've got all the meals together, but no one to eat it. Do I sound cross? I'm not. I promise you. But what we did was something really profound, is we said, help. And what we've got at the moment is we've got a life group where, yes, Nix and I kind of lead it. It's full to the brim with people and lives, and we cannot find a way in a home that can fit us all in, but that's okay. But what we've got is everyone has a role. And in that moment, one person said, cool, I'll do all the rostering. The other person suggested, why don't we all host the conversation so you guys don't even need to worry about it? Then I said, and you know what would really help us? If we finish 15 minutes early and you all clean our house with us, and you know what everyone said? They said, that's an amazing idea. We would love that. And so we finish 15 minutes before we used to. On the dot, I am vigilant. And then I make sure that we all clean. And then the guys come to me from walking outside. They go, can you do a check? Is everything Okay. And I inspect the garden and make sure that everything is the way it should be because we don't have someone who's going to come clean our house and we've got to try to put our kids to bed and it's a school night. And it's crazy to think that you can walk out of someone's house and leave it looking like an absolute bombshell hit it and go, cool, now we get our kids to bed in a lovely clean home. So you will clean our house. And they did. And they do. And you know what? Do you know who grew the most through that? It's not just the people who clean our house with us. It's us. Uh, In fact, my daughter, Josie, talking of kind of community and and relationships, she said, Dad, what's the most important word in the world? I was like, well, she said, beside Jesus, because she knew I'm a pastor. I'm going to answer that one. (laughs) So beside Jesus. And I thought for a while, and I thanked Charlie Makassi for this word, and it was something that stuck out, was the word help. Help. So hard to ask but so potent when you do. And one of the things we learned in that season, and I hope I'm kind of seeding some, some fresh thoughts for you and your life group, and maybe questions you could ask your life group leader, and life groups, things you could put into your group as you think about the year ahead and building community and relationship, is to ask the question, how can we help each other? How can we make sure that this thing goes the long haul because we are actually mucking? because we actually walk out of that house and those life group leaders feel loved and served and we, they, their house isn't an absolute mess. Here's the question I'm asking. If everyone engaged with the church, and I mean the body of Christ and the people of Christ, the way that you do, what kind of church would we have? Here we've got presence. I'm going to fly through the next ones. We've also got formation. It's the kind of people we're becoming. Uh, the, the scriptures are pretty clear that it's impossible to become like Jesus without Jesus' people. just want you to soak in that thought for a moment. I want you to marinate in that concept that to become like Jesus, and a lot of people think it, that I can become like Jesus, but I don't need to embrace his church. Jesus thinks you're crazy. Jesus' teaching says that you are dilly. You've lost your mind. It's not compatible with his teaching. He talks all the time about the fact that it's your brotherly love. It's your affection for one another. It's your living out the relationship that is actually going to help you to become like him. You cannot separate the two. If you think you can, you're crazy. Hey, you're here because you're open to that, uh, that concept anyway. But many Christians have dissociated. They've disconnected. They go, you know what? I can follow Jesus, but I don't need church. Where did they get that from? Whoever teaches that in the scriptures? Dallas Willard says, you know, the most important thing about us is not what we do, but it's who we become. It's who we're becoming. Being part of a life group was one of the most powerful ways for me to learn to ask this thing of help, to be able to say, hey, I need help. Who are you becoming and and who are you becoming that with? Uh, life groups take a long time to forge relationships. And, and I'm not just selling life groups. In fact, you'll see at the end, I'm talking more about building relationships than just getting into big groups of people. But for now, I wanna ask the question, who are you planning to become this year? And we used that word last year, the teleos of your life. What's the, the, where, where are you heading? What's your goal? What's your vision for who you're becoming? The big goal and the big vision of Scripture for who you're becoming is to be formed into the image of Jesus. You'd want to look at the scriptures. You can look at so many scriptures. Maybe it's about looking at the fruits of the Spirit. A person who's like Jesus is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. But I, but I think it's more than just showing those fruits. It's about becoming a person who knows how to worship Jesus, who has a growing understanding of intimacy with Him and friendship with Him. Who we're becoming is a community project. They say it takes a village to raise a child. Honestly, it takes a church. It takes a chosen lady, a beautiful gathered group of people to help a person grow into maturity. And maybe you think you can do without. Maybe you think you can grow up without the church. I want to suggest don't fight with me. Fight with Jesus. Argue with the teachings of Scripture as to whether you think you can grow into maturity but not rub up against the people of God all the time. It's just gotta happen. We're a people who wanna grow into the image of Jesus. We wanna be with Jesus and help each other to become more like Jesus. We're also a people on mission. We're a people on mission, presence, formation, mission. She's a passionate lady. She's a lady who understands that she has been loved, but she's also called to love the world. This church, this army, this bride of Christ, this body of Christ isn't dedicated simply to sitting together on Wednesday evenings to talk about our feelings and to make sure we're all feeling happy. This church is created for a mission. One friend once described this as a bride with army boots on. She's got a mission. She's beautiful and she's adorned, but she's ready to go. She loves her neighbors and she loves the nations of the world and she's ready to take the love of Christ to the world. One of Jesus' big metaphors for the, the mission that he calls us to is the metaphor of salt and light. Jesus says you should be salt and light. You are the salt of the world. And he says if the salt loses saltiness, it's, it's useless. It should be thrown out. He says then you're, a, you're the light of the world. If a, You can't put a lamp and then cover it up. It should be shown so that the world can see the light. Now, here's something important to understand about salt and light. They were two very different things. Jesus wasn't just using two metaphors that could both be used and like, choose salt or choose light. Salt did one thing, light did another. Salt was a preservative. Put salt all over the meat, and you knew the meat wouldn't get rotten and stinky, and you'd be able to eat it a few days later. It preserved things. Light was about pushing forward. The moment you put a light in a dark place, you could suddenly see darkness went away. What Jesus thinks about when he thinks about his church and his bride, he says, firstly, you're salt. You're meant to maintain stuff. You're meant to preserve some stuff. Hey, sometimes to love people is, and, and to just be a part of the church is to make sure it doesn't get worse. It's a preservative. It's make sure that the rot doesn't get any worse. I'll never forget when I first understood this. Some people's lives or their marriages are, are right on the very edge. It's just about to fall apart, whether it's uh, your oneself, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a marriage. And sometimes your continual pitching up, your presence in the place is about actually just preserving it from getting any worse. It's an amazing thought. Jesus says, you just potentially having someone, just drawing them in and saying, stick with us, we'll help you. Hey, come to our life group, just stick with us. I know it's tough. We just wanna preserve. We just wanna help you. Jesus can preserve stuff that is on the edge of going totally orphan rotten. But it doesn't stop there. He says, you're also the light of the world. It doesn't just preserve. It also pushes forward. You're called to be a people who help your neighbors and your nations to find Jesus. We're not doing Alpha to feel good about ourselves. We're doing Alpha because you and I have friends and family who need an invitation to start a journey that could shape both their life before and after their death. What a wonderful thought. Hey, something next reminded us of when it comes to invitations and thoughts about bringing people either to church or to Alpha, is that although we may be more nervous, I think we live in quite a hostile world where we expect hostility and and negativity. One of the things we're finding more and more is that although you somehow expect that because you watch hostile stuff on the media, when you invite people, we're finding more and more people are actually really keen and open. So although it's scary in the media, it's actually really fruitful in person. And maybe you're a little intimidated because the world is so hostile. But just ask your friend. Just the colleague next door say, hey, we're we doing this Alpha thing. You want to come with? It's a good chance they say yes. It's funny. I think we're kind of nervous by what might happen, but actually what happens in reality is often way better. We're called to be salt and to be light, to preserve and to push back darkness. It's an amazing thought that you and I get to do that. How has God chosen us? And then if you look closely, and uh, you'll see here these concentric circles, presence, formation, mission is all kind of pulled together by relationship. And uh, less and less am I excited about the word community. I think it's a bit nebulous. I think it's lost its power. It's not dead, but it's, it's dying. And I, the reason I say that is because we can say community, be part of community, do community well. But I know too many people in our society who can sit in a huge room but feel really lonely, who can be around a whole bunch of people but never really feel known. And I want to suggest today that we are looking at the word relationship as a church, that we believe that if we're going to be healthy, it's not because we build community. I'm seriously disinterested in how many people join our church from the perspective of a growing church. If we are growing in relationship, this will be a healthy church. If we're growing to learn to love each other and know each other, this will be a healthy year. It'll be wonderful. And and by all accounts, this church is growing numerically. But if we only grow numerically, but we don't grow relationally, then we may be called a community and we may have some stuff that people like about us, but it might not be the stuff the Bible wants us to really have marking us. And relationship, I love the word because it's two-way and it resists consumerism. It resists that sense of, you know what, community, I joined it, but it never worked out. You can't have relationship not work out because it's a two-way street. Relationship is a dance. You can't have someone dancing around you and say you were dancing. You've got to dance with them. If you want to be effective in dancing, your feet need to move together. Don't come to me for dancing lessons, but do come to me for relationship lessons because I'm terrible at it, but I'm hungry to learn. And I believe that living life in community is about learning to build relationships. And I want to suggest today that the ability to ask for help, the ability to bring our vulnerability, the ability to just not rush off, whether it's here or whether it's at Life Group, it's not about ticking the box. It's about learning to be loved and to love people. One of my relational mottos, and I say this cautiously, has been that vulnerability seems to break down doors. If you want to be in a healthy relationship, Stop pretending. Take your masks off and let people in. Some of you might go, but Roger, I've done that and it came back and it bit me. I would suggest it's worth the risk. For every one bite that you might get, you're gonna get nine open doors of love and opportunity to let people love you. Don't use the excuse of past pain to not let people love you and to build friendships. I sincerely mean this when I say that my very best friendships over the 20 years of following Jesus were birthed out of the one word I mentioned earlier, help. My first buddy, George, who we've been friends with for so long, was, I'm struggling with my studies and I can't keep it together, help. And he went, cool, let's pray together every morning before tech and we will, we'll, get, we'll get started that way, Cool. My next buddy was about my porn addiction, and I said, Voldu, I need help. And we helped each other, and we walked the long, hard road of getting through that and getting over it. Hey, I want to date, and I want to date well. And my buddy Ryan began to walk alongside me and to teach me how to find a wife in a way that honors the person and honors people around me. It's about asking for help, that you build relationships that actually what ends up happening is they end up also having some mutual need. We're not in this thing to build some nebulous community. We're in this thing to build lifelong friendships that will shape the way we become like Jesus. Build your friendship into the kind of friendship that you need. That's a cool thought. Build your friendships into the kind of friendships that you need. And if you're gonna do that, it's gonna be because you offer need. If you never bring need, all you have is a bunch of acquaintances that you hang out with. Build some friendships that you need. Build some 3 a.m. friends, as we often talk about. Okay, how's your relationship with this chosen lady? I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I want to land with a short story. And it's a story in the Scriptures. In Genesis, there's these two sisters, Rachel and Leah. You remember them? If you've read your Bible, you'll know about Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the prom queen. She was the gorgeous uh, youngest sister that everybody loved. She was captain of all the teams and uh, she was beautiful at the same time and she kept getting chosen to be head girl and it was just like life was amazing for her. And on top of that, one of the, the patriarchs, Jacob, falls in love with her. It's just working out so well for Rachel. Everybody loves Rachel. And then there's poor old Leah. Leah, the scriptures describe as dim in the eyes. It's the scripture's really, really ancient way of saying she wasn't much to look at by superficial standards. And amazingly, what happens in the story is that this guy, Jacob, works for seven years and tells the father of both Rachel and Leah, because they're sisters, Laban. He says, Laban, I'll work for seven years if I can marry Rachel. And on his wedding night, we don't know exactly how Laban tricked him. But he woke up the next morning and guess who's next to him not Rachel but Leah dim in the eyes wasn't the head girl didn't get the grades it's an amazing story and and and, and Jacob is absolutely fuming goes back to Laban, and says how could you do this and eventually uh, a week later and in in repayment he has to do another seven years of working for his father-in-law he gets to marry Rachel as well and as I was thinking about this relationship that we have with the church I began to think about this relationship that Jacob had with Rachel and Leah because what ends up happening is that Rachel grows incredibly bitter she has everything But still feels like she's got nothing. And at the very end of Rachel's life, the prom queen who had it all is on her deathbed giving birth to her final child. And she curses her child and almost curses the life that she has. And she wanted to name him a cursed name. I can't remember the exact Hebrew name. And Jacob has to rename him Benjamin. Benjamin. But Leah, who didn't have it all, the first half of her life was a misery. The second half of her life, she comes to terms with reality that she didn't have it all. And it's somehow those eyes lighten as she begins to see that somehow in all of her pain, God could have used something beautiful. God could be doing something super precious with her life. And at the very end, she has a child called Judah. if anyone knows the story of the scriptures they know that Judah happens to become the great 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 grandfather of the very son of God he's in that lineage and what's amazing about the story of Leah is that although Jacob didn't think she was much to look at she ended up being the most fruitful of his life I sometimes think when we look at the church we sometimes go it could be better Imagine they did this. Imagine people were like this. Imagine that. I can't trust because of that. But what if right under your nose is fruitfulness beyond what you could imagine? What if right under your nose, if you loved her well, are generations of radical and profound salting and lighting of the world? What if the way that you love this chosen lady Although she doesn't look exactly how you hoped she would. And although the people around you sometimes feel like it causes you claustrophobia or they they don't behave or they push back or the, the group meets at the wrong time or doesn't do what exactly you would like. What if you love her so well because she's made to become fruitful? And what if she's your Leah? And what if your loving her gives birth to something way beyond yourself? I want to suggest that that's what God calls us to. As He calls us to this chosen lady, as He calls us to this local church, she is broken thanks to you and me. She's beyond imperfect thanks to you and me. But if we love her well, we could do something beautiful and cause amazing fruit. If everyone engaged with the church the way that you do, who would she become? Jesus? As we think about the church, I pray that we wouldn't just think about Sundays and Wednesdays. I pray that our minds and our hearts would begin to be stirred with the possibility of relationships that could be used to love the world. Missions that could be started to transform societies. Plans and adventures that could shape churches and other nations. Lord, as we think about trips that we have even to Madagascar, God, we think of this beautiful chosen lady, Lord, with all her flaws and imperfections, as filled with potential, because we are present with you, because you are at the center. And more than us choosing you, you chose us. And this morning, we are not the the brave ones, because we choose to love the church. No, no, you're the good one. You're the merciful one because you chose to love us despite our rebellion, despite our ability to keep turning our back on you. And so today we don't celebrate the beauty of the church as as much as we celebrate the beauty of your love over us. We thank you that you love us and you pursue us, that we are your leader, that you love us despite our flaws and so we receive your love maybe for some of us today it's to receive his love for the first time it's to say yes to the call of Jesus he's he's calling you to start a relationship with him to be part of his family his bride his church this is your gap today you can do it anytime you don't need a pastor to tell you how to do it but all you need to do is to say i choose you jesus because you chose me first i turn from my life of my way and i say yes to following you your way i turn from striving in my strength and i choose to receive your undeserved grace I say no to my self-sufficiency, and I say yes to the fact that you've got all I need. And I ask you to help me to learn to love and to be loved as I walk this journey of relationship with your people, but most importantly, relationship with you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, as we sing, we sing as a people who are united in a common DNA under one Father, one Spirit, one Savior, and we exalt in your beautiful name. We say yes to your call over us to be a faithful community of brothers and sisters who love each other in deepening relationship of growing and healthy trust and vulnerability. To that end, we invite you to help us. Thanks so much for joining us today. In Common Ground Bloberg, we prize seeing information turned into revelation. In other words, a deep heart understanding of what we've heard. Why don't you take a moment now to just prayerfully consider what information have you heard that you're trusting God to take deep into your heart and turn into revelation that'll shape your life. Have a fantastic day.